Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes a letter to a church at Ephesus and tells them about the glories of God's grace and he lifts thing he lifts up what God has given as to the praise of God's glory and his grace. And in chapter 2 he begins to write where we were before Christ and then chapter 2 verse 4 he says, "But God who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us even when we are dead in sins has quickened us, made us alive together with Christ by grace ye are saved." and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So here he gives the whole scope of where we were, what God has done to save us, and why we were saved. And then in chapter 3 at the end, he says, uh, he says we have we are been brought into a family, the church of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, And now to him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without end. Amen. So that answers the basic question that we may have. Why does the church of Jesus Christ exist? It exists to be filled with the glory of God and display the glory, the uniqueness of who our God is to the world. You might say, well, how does the church display the glory of God? Paul wrote a letter to a man named Titus, who had been sent to an island off the coast of Greece named Crete. And there, in in that particular setting, where the gospel had been planted and congregations had been formed, Paul tells Titus in Titus 1 verse 5, For this cause left I you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and ordain elders in every city as I appointed you. So there were some things that still needed to be strengthened. Things that were weak or things that were not existing that needed to be placed into the church, churches at Crete. One of those things was, was, was pastors there in the churches. Another of those things was some of the false doctrine and false teachers were to be rooted out. Who he says in verse um, 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to them that are defiled and unbelieving there is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient to every good work, reprobate or worthless. And then in chapter 2 he talks about the doctrine that needed to soak in and be formed in discipling relationships between the older and the younger, between masters and servants, to, to, to a, an interweaving and a web here of discipling relationships so that the doctrine that's in their heart could be shown and displayed. And he says this several times. He says in verse 7, "...in all things showing yourself a pattern of good works." It describes what that might look like. 
And then he says uh, in verse 10, um, that they may ordain, adorn, they may uh, um, display the doctrine, show and tell the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And then he takes that thought here in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 14. He shows what he wants the result here of when the church is, is uh, that, the, the things that needed to be set in order, when it's all completed, what it will look like. And she says this, beginning with the grace of God in chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching, that word is, is training us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus' return. Our eyes set, just like we've looked in Peter, our eyes set on the return of Jesus. The end of all things is at hand. Who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity. We receive forgiveness of sins, right? And purify to Himself a peculiar or unique, a special people, zealous of good works. This is right what he has already said in Ephesians 2, isn't it? He saved us. And he has saved us and washed us with his grace, not of our own, but he has saved us so that then we display the character of Christ in us to good works. He tells Titus, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. And displays in chapter 3 how to, how to relate among the unbelieving world. It reminds us not to uh, harbor uh, uh, um, uh, bad attitudes toward unbelievers. Remember, where that, that's where we were before we came to Christ in verse 3. We ourselves also were, were at one time foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done to save ourselves. But according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration, making us alive, and renewing the Holy Ghost. He puts the Spirit inside us to make us like Jesus. Now what, was that, what, would, that, what would that look like? which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So He reminds us again of our salvation, what God has done to save us, where He's put us, this new position. And then He says this in verse 8, This is a trustworthy, a faithful saying, one that needs to be pounded into our heads. And these things I will, I want, that you affirm constantly that they which have believed in God, people who have come to Christ, might be, notice, careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. He tells us what to avoid. And then look in verse 14, he says, And let ours also... Those under our care in our ministries, let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. So right in those two passages, Ephesians and Titus, you see very clearly we are not saved by our works. It's the grace of God. 
But God has saved us so that he imports his character into us. And his character is a God who is a God that is that is not just love us ambiguously. He loves us deliberately. He loves us intentionally. He loves us specifically. And that love is poured out because of the mercy we receive, Peter says, in 1 Peter 2, which were people that had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That then we show forth, we, we show forth the goodness of God, 1 Peter 2, 8 through 10, his mercy to others. And so it's upon that that we might wonder, well, I see here that God saved us not by our own works, by His grace alone. And I see that He saved us for a purpose. He doesn't just save us and say, sit here in this trophy case and don't move, right? But He says, I saved you so that you represent Me. So that you are little Christs, Christians in this world. And so that you practice and are zealous, passionate about good works and are eager and maintain and press into this thing and not draw back. You might wonder, well, what does that look like? And Jesus makes it very simple for us. And so I'd like you to turn back to our text this morning that we read, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Warren read, beginning in verse 25, Behold a certain lawyer. A lawyer wasn't like the guys who uh, try to get everybody to sue each other today. And that day, the word lawyer there is somebody who studied the law of Moses, the law of God that was given to Moses. He stood up and he tempted. He was testing Jesus and he asked this question, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that shapes the context here of this passage. He, he wants to know what to do to have eternal life with God. And it's interesting how Jesus responds to this. I want you to understand the context here. What Jesus tells us in this parable is what none of us can do on our own. What Jesus tells us in this parable is what one person, only one human being has ever done perfectly and fulfilled. What Jesus is telling this man who was testing him was this. This is the expectation of God for people, for humankind. You can't do it. You will fall short. And let me flip your understanding of what a neighbor is on its head to show you how impossible this is. You need me. You need a Savior. And that's the context. That's what he's speaking here. He is not giving this parable to, sh- to say that if you do a few good things, then you're going to inherit eternal life. That's not what he's saying here. That may be what the mainline liberal denominations teach. That's not what Jesus is teaching here in context. He wants us to understand that this is the purpose for why God created mankind. And only those who have received God's mercy and are forgiven can then operate out of His mercy. It describes a story that probably everybody in this room, I'm assuming, has heard at one time or another. Very familiar. The road to Jericho is steep and dangerous. It's so dangerous that people over history have called it the bloody way. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is 17 miles away. And it sits 1,000 feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. And the road between those towns descends sharply through mountainous territory. As there's crags and caves. It's rocky. There's all kinds of places for thieves to hide and strike and then get away very easily. 
Traveling the Jericho Road, the road to Jericho in those days, was very much like you walking down a dark alley in a very modern city today. Except that it was miles to the nearest streetlight and miles to the nearest help. And it's in this dark alley here in the Middle East that a man becomes a victim to others. He falls into the hands of robbers in verse 30. They strip him of his clothes, they beat him, they go away, and he is struggling to live. He is half dead. That's the context here. That's the story that goes that Jesus is trying to display here. And Jesus, in this parable, is not telling us that you and I can be saved by imitating the Good Samaritan and that will save you. He is very clearly telling us to follow His pattern. But Jesus is humbling this man, this lawyer here, this studier of God's law, to show him that this task is impossible except for somebody who has received God's mercy already and are forgiven in Christ. He's humbling him with the love that God requires so that we can receive the love that God offers in the person of Christ and therefore go and do likewise with mercy to others. Very important to understand. Let's remind ourselves in the story of the Scriptures here what God made us for. He made us for perfect relation. He made us to serve others. He made us to, 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 to give of ourselves in His creation, most namely the, those who image God to serve others, human beings. And remind ourselves in Genesis 3 that we rebelled and we fell short and the, the, the perfection of loving God and loving others, there in the garden in Genesis 3 you already see the fractures, you already see the, the, the entangling, the, the, um, the twisting up of what we are made to be. There in the garden, very quickly, there is not loving fellow imagers, there is um, fractures. There is not loving God, there is hiding from Him. And the problem is humankind, because of their rebellion, needed a new heart. And the only way that could happen is not by us manufacturing that of ourselves, but God had to have mercy on us. And listen, in this story of the Good Samaritan, let's not let the mainline liberal denomination steal this story here. Let's take it back. And let's operate in this story here out of a new heart, a heart that we read about in Ephesians 2. Being saved, being washed, being made alive in Jesus. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. I want you to see a couple things in this story, and it's not going to be extended exposition. It's be quick here. But number one, I want you to see that Jesus defines what the neighbor is. What the neighbor is. Look at this story uh, as he as he shares this in Luke chapter ten. <clears throat> Here he um, asks the man, um, "What what is the what's the summation of the law?" And the man correctly answers, "It's to love God with everything and to love our neighbor as yourself." And Jesus affirms that he says in verse twenty, "You've answered right. This do and you shall live." Knowing that he couldn't. And the man who realizes that he can't live up to this godly standard says this in verse 29, but he, willing to justify himself, trying to find a loophole, because he knows he can't live up to the standard, says to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus does not answer that question with a sentence, does he? He answers it with a story, and there in this story, he flips the table. 
And who is the neighbor in this story, by the way? Who is the neighbor at the end of the story? The, the Samaritan, right? Okay. Who is the man who was in need? The Jewish man, right? Probably if Jesus were to tell it today, it would be the Palestinian, right? And the, and the Jewish man there in Israel. Um, if you were to tell it to us, it would be uh, a, a, a person probably who you would not want to be close to. You would have broken relationships with. You would try to avoid. And Jesus puts that man who is injured, who is broken as the man in need, and He says, now who's the neighbor? Who's the neighbor? And so Jesus defines the neighbor here. He, he, uh, who, who are you in this story here if Jesus is telling it to you? And what this man was trying to do was put up walls as to what are the limits of my service? And Jesus says, let's answer that question the other way around. If you are the person in need of service, where would you say the limits are? You follow? And so he doesn't put the Jewish man as the one who goes and helps the Good Samaritan. He reverses it and says the one who you are not anxious to build a relationship with, that person is the one who served you. So who was the neighbor? Who was the neighbor? Jesus is so wise. He's so wise. And so Jesus redefines the neighbor. It's the one who had mercy on the one who had the need. And then I want you to see that Jesus describes what loving is. What loving is. We put love in such vague terms. Our culture and society has redefined God's love as a feeling. What we feel, whether we're motivated to or not. And that determines if we're going to love or not. Notice how this love is defined, this mercy is defined It's not by the one who couldn't make time in their schedule and walked by one who was a religious person. It wasn't uh, wasn't love that was shown by the person who wanted to avoid the need. It was shown by the one who seemed like the unlikely one, the Good Samaritan. And verse 33 says, A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had pity. He had compassion on him. And he didn't say, boy, that guy's in a rough spot. Man, I feel for him. Man, if only... What did he do? Because his compassion bound him to action. And verse 34 says, and went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an end, and took care of him. He 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 took the man's burdens and he put them on his own responsibility here to care for him, and the man could not. And tomorrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave the host and said, "Take care of him. Whatsoever you spend more, when I come again, I will repay you." Which now of these three think you was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? The man doesn't want to say the Samaritan. What does he say? He that showed mercy on him, right? And Jesus says, go and do thou likewise. Go and do the same. Go and do the same. Listen, this parable shatters what many times we have begun to believe are our priorities, right? 
and a fast pace, look out for me, American way of life. Jesus used the work of righteousness to display the essence here of what God has saved us to do in our relationships. And then notice at the end that Jesus challenges to fulfill this purpose. Again, not so that man, so doing these things that man would be saved, but to show him his native Savior, to to remind him he had received, uh, uh, God had done so many things for him, he received mercy and friends. God has poured out his love towards us, he has saved us, he has taken us from the auction block of sin to being set free to serve him as our new master. Go. And do likewise. Fulfill our purpose here. He challenges us to fulfill this purpose. You see, it wasn't enough to know one's duty, like the religious leaders, right? The priest and the Levite had more biblical knowledge than probably anybody, probably more than the Samaritan. It's not enough to know all the ethical principles. It's not enough even that they share the same ethnic affinity. With the man who was, it was one of their own, right? That was not enough. The Samaritan didn't have all the knowledge. He didn't have all the principles that were to come out of Moses' law here. And he didn't even share the ethnicity. But what did he have? He had compassion and that was enough. Go and do the same. Do the same what? Show mercy on others. Show mercy on others. Because people have been shown the mercy of God and the most precious gift of His Son. Go and do likewise. Listen, let's take this back here from the mainline liberal denominations. We have a gospel reason here. We have more reason. He saved us not by our works of righteousness. And let's keep the ministry that God calls us to very simple as Jesus does. Go and do the same. But I don't know what my gift is. I don't know where to serve. Go and show mercy on others. Serve others. Let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify God, Jesus said. Keep it simple. And so there's some questions here this morning. Who are the people you are passing by on the other side? There's actually some ways to wisely think about that. Did you know... The Bible calls families to care for their own first. If you have a widow on your family, it is incumbent, it is a non-negotiable for you and that family to care for that widow and not leave that to the care of others. In fact, those who don't, the Bible says, are worse than an infidel. So there's a circle here of priority. So I wonder, who in your family, in your extended family relationships, there are people then who you can go and do the same. Many times we do a good job in that, and there's sometimes where we take care of our families worse than we take care of other people. Let it not be so with the believer. Who are the people you're passing by on the other side? Start there. And the first organization here, the first group here for, for showing mercy on is, the, is your family. When God sees a person in need, He puts primary responsibility for aid on that person's family. He instructs each family to have a ministry. That's the innermost circle here, if you're going to draw these out. The immediate family. Disabled or elderly or chronically ill members. Elderly or in weak parents. Um, uncles and aunts. Cousins. Relatives in need. 
Look there first. Look there first. And then there's a second circle here where Paul says to the Galatians, let us do good unto all men, especially those that are what? In the household of faith. There's a second ministry within the church. Um, sensitive individuals watching for needs, being alert needs, meeting them out of their own schedules, out of their own pockets, out of their own hearts. Here amongst our church family. But that's not where it ends, is it? The third circle is your neighborhood or your nearby community. You might wonder, well, um, how can I minister in my neighborhood or nearby community if I'm taking care of these uh, uh, of, of our family and I'm, I'm being alert to the needs of our church? And how can I look also outside of those circles to our neighborhood and, and a nearby community? And you do this by being alert. We drive by things and we drive by people and we pass by people and really don't think about what needs are. You see neighbors who might be struggling with grief. By the way, in February, we'll start up another grief share that um, Shaney will host on Sundays at the end of the month, I believe. That's an opportunity to minister to people's hurts and grief. People with loss. You see neighbors or people in the community with sickness or that have gone through divorce or age has severely limited them or disability or problems do you see needs in your community you might say well how do I see needs in my community well the very first thing is be neighborly which means friendly which means initiating conversations asking people how they're doing one of the ways that was a huge way that God's mercy worked out and opened up huge doors to show and tell the gospel is through hospitality. Do your neighbors see your door as a wall or do they see it as an open invitation? You inviting them into their life, into your lives. If you have kids, families with kids, those can break down huge barriers. I realize it can set up barriers. They can break down huge barriers with people being willing to talk. Nursing home opportunities abound. Are you using the gifts that God's given you, including your children, as good stewards to serve and minister to others? Kids break down huge barriers. There might be people that I, I might be scared to talk to and not know how to approach, but I got a kid there and I see, I see them smile at one of my little kids. And it opens up all kinds of opportunities. Hey, in your neighborhoods, you got a tool that somebody new uses, needs? Some of you are a little uh, crazy about your tools a little bit. You know, a little tight-fisted about your tools. Have you ever thought maybe that might be an opportunity? Not that you have to be unwise about it. But that could open a door to go and do the same. Um, can you find natural ways to give gifts? Here's what I mean by that. You buy too many plants, or too many tickets to the game, or you make too much bread, or you plant too many tomatoes or zucchinis, right? I got too much and I can take these extras to your neighbors, to the folks at work, to people in the church whom you're trying to cultivate a friendship. Go and do the same. Or maybe it's not a physical thing, maybe it's a service that you provide. Maybe you're good at a certain service, a certain thing here. 
Um, maybe your elderly neighbor needs somebody to till their garden. Or you see them beginning to paint their shed. Or you see their front steps are starting to rot. Go, I mean, we could make a list for hours, right? Go and do the same. What, what's, what are you waiting for, right? See, our biggest problem is not that we're willing to consider the bleeding man on our... Our biggest problem is that we're not willing to consider the bleeding man on our road until sometimes he bites us on the ankle. Right? Go and do the same. So families, if you're the, if you're the leader of your family, this is something that you need to cultivate in your families. An eye for this. A, a training your children, etc. here to be involved in this selfless serving of your neighbors. What about on a church level? Well, this is where I think we can um, we can grow and on a formal level um, put together certain structures. And I'd just like to suggest a couple a couple things here. <clears throat> um, we have a, a deacons fund, and um, we use that fund. The deacons use that fund to provide for particular needs. I want you to know that's available, and you can. Uh, it's good to communicate with our deacons when you're aware of needs that might need financial help or purchases. But a few years ago, I put together um, a service bank and I got some good responses about services or things that people are able to do, that God has um, given them um, uh, uh, transportation, childcare, hospitality, yard work, carpentry, bookkeeping, um, house cleaning, and so on. And I'd like to revisit that again and, and put out a, uh, a request of what are some things that God has given you or gifted you so that you can serve others. And keep it in a file, keep it in a bank, so that there, when there are, there are needs that we are aware of, oh, so-and-so is really good at carpentry, and they could fix that person's steps. Or so-and-so needs their kids watched while they go to the hospital. Or this elderly person can't drive anymore, needs transportation to their doctor appointment. And we keep inventory of the skills. And, and our, our, uh, There's a single parent who has, is having car troubles and, and needs help with the repairs. There might be elderly people who need at least practical help with transportation or home maintenance. Single parents, disabled, chronically ill, unemployed, etc., so we need eyes and ears on the ground for these things. There might be gaps of services that are offered in our, in our community, organizations that provide things, but there might be gaps that are not being met, that are not currently offered in our community. And I wonder if perhaps we can do this. I wonder if there would be an individual who might speak to me or get a hold of me here who would be willing to set up a... Team, ministry team, who will put together a needs survey for our community and help us to wisely love the people in our community. Discover perhaps the things that exist already, agencies that are carrying on programs that meet needs in our community. So to learn about what's going on there and learn where the gaps are and how effective they are. To find what's not being met because there is not action being taken to help. To discover ways to meet and contact people with needs and questions. To build bridges. All this for the sake of the Gospel. Not only deed ministry, but word ministry. 
to open doors, to find and meet people, to put out a need survey in our community, to visit maybe some of the uh, uh, organizations in our areas that provide services, and then also to speak to other individuals who provide service. Doctors and lawyers and local policemen and mail carriers and etc. here who might not have, uh, not, might, might not be heading up an, an organization here, but might have a finger on the pulse of our community more than anyone else. I'll summarize and put together the findings, and then help us be mobilized then to go and do likewise. Not so that ministry just ends simply at, as helping other people, but so that we get to speak of the greatest mercy. That the mercy that we show on others there, we can give reason of the hope that's in us and why we did that, no strings attached. And then mobilize the body. Mobilize the body. I wonder if maybe there's some questions you can think of to you as an individual. Is there a particular human need that you um, uh, sync with? If I went over this piano and I sang a certain note, one of the strings on that piano would vibrate as it would uh, uh, correspond to that note that I would sing. Is there a particular human need that you're drawn to, that you sync with, that is speaking to you? Are there particular resources that you have to help meet that need? Are there a couple others in our congregation here? Because Jesus usually sent people in teams. He sent out His disciples two by two, right? One cord is okay. Two is a little stronger. Three is not quickly broken, right? Are there others in the congregation who share this burden for this ministry that you can group up with. Is there an opening for this particular ministry and service? Are you, is it meeting a need that's not being met? Perhaps you just need to partner with others who are already doing this. And then the question that all of us need to ask is, have we really counted the cost? Because to serve and give to others means that it's going to cost. It's not going to be easy. Are you committed? What would be really awesome is this. Imagine this. Imagine groups of people in our church who have bonded together like a band of brothers to specifically target a specific need. They meet together. They are refreshed by the Word of God together. They pray together. But they have a specific target ministry that they are working together on, shoulder to shoulder. They meet needs with service in the Word of God. People who know Jesus Christ bonded together for a specific targeted purpose. Imagine the impact of that. Imagine the strength, <clears throat> the strengthening of the church body as people serve together. We talk about wanting to grow in community and wanting to break uh, and wanting to strengthen our relationships with one another. There is no better way. There is no better way than to do this than by serving with one another with common interests and common ways that you've been called to serve. Imagine a group, groups like that all through our church where everybody belongs to one of these groups where we're growing in the Word together, we're praying together, we're growing together, and we have a targeted service outreach. Maybe it's, we're going to serve and minister to the Hope Elementary School. Or a particular other ministry. You let your imagination do the work. And you pray that God brings other people into that. 
And let's see this thing start to grow organically. It's a powerful thing when God's church is fulfilling its purpose. Can you imagine the opportunities you'd have to speak about the Lord as you serve? You might say, well, what's the foundation of all this? It's Jesus. Read John 13. The night before Jesus dies, that very passage where he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, you have love for one another, right? The very night, what is he doing? He's self-giving. He's serving. He's going and doing likewise. Not because anybody showed mercy on him. Because he's showing mercy on us. His self-giving was to the point of a bloody, violent death in our place for our sins. That's at the core of all this. That's the part that's detached from mainstream religion today. How much more with the true gospel of Jesus Christ do we have to go and do the same? Can we remember that? Be powered by this gospel and then Flow out to others. Go and do the same. I'd like as we pray to have our deacons come up as we remember our Lord, who's the foundation of all this. His self-giving is showing mercy on us at the cross. The point of a bloody, violent death. In place for my sin that He did not commit. That is selfless service. That provided eternal redemption. Lord Jesus, you gave this story to that man to humble him, to bring him to a point. Just like you did with a rich young ruler who you said, go and sell everything that you have, to show the obstacles in his own heart that needed to be let go for you to be received. Lord, I would dare say most in this room would profess to know you as Lord Jesus Christ, have a relationship with you. We can allow things to creep in in our lives and begin to think we deserve certain things and miss the point of why we're saved to serve you and to serve others. Would you help us be powered by the good news of Jesus Christ and help this gospel and word to flow out? And help us to live in line with this new life that you've called us to, to flow out to others and go and do the same. In your name we pray. Amen. It's our great privilege to remember the Lord Jesus. The apostles instituted these practices to make sure that we never move away from what brought us together to him in the first place. And so we remember his body and his blood that was shed for us. Not that there's anything mystical in these but that they draw our hearts to our Savior. And so as partake first of the broken body that was shed by our Lord, and then secondly the cup of, 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 a, of His shed blood for us, uh, we remember, we remember, and we are fueled by what we remember, and we never move on from the Gospel. Thank the Lord for his broken body.
Father, we come here not truly able to comprehend the great sacrifice you made. Coming to earth and humbling yourself before God and before us to give a sacrifice that we can never repay. We're truly doing it out of love and concern for us. Help us not to forget. And help us to realize the cost that we can give back in, as our pastors even said today, with our time and our energies and our focus on the real purpose why we're still here. Give us a heart, give us a mind to never forget and to act upon what we do know. We thank you again for your great sacrifice. before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own which were in the world he loved them to the end and supper being ended the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Then comes he to Simon Peter, and Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you know not now, but you shall know hereafter. Peter says to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash you not, you have no part with me. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus says to him, He that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every bit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, You are not clean. So after he had washed their feet and taken their garments and was set down again, he said to them, Know you what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that once it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that receives whomsoever I send, receives me. And he that receives me, receives him that sent me.
Scripture says, and when he had taken the bread, he blessed it and broke it. So take heed, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let's take that again. shed blood that covers us perfectly. Lord Jesus, how can we ever thank you? King of Kings, word of the works. Willing to leave it all behind. Humble yourself to come to a broken world, a broken people. To be the Good Samaritan. To humble yourself to death, to die on the cross. To shed your blood so that we, broken, lost sinners, might have life life eternal. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning as our Savior and as our Lord, thanking you for that which you have done for us, making it possible that our sins might be washed, buried in the depths of the sea, removed as far as the east is from the west, cast behind your infinite back to be remembered no more. Thank you. Good. Therefore, when Judas was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him.
If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall immediately glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I go you cannot come, so now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where go you? Jesus answered him, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards.